Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. a.m. The Superstation. I'm Henry Payne, auto columnist for the Detroit News. Great to have you on here for the best car radio show in all of Michigan. We are broadcasting live today from the beautiful M1 Concourse up in Pontiac, Michigan. Uh, M1 is putting on the inaugural American Speed Festival. A uh, tremendous program up here. Ra- if you like race cars, this is the place uh, to be this weekend. And uh, for the next two hours, you'll be uh, listening to some of the great uh, Racers of all time, folks like David Hobbs, Bobby Rahal, uh, got my sidekick here, Tom McDonald, uh, uh, talking to these folks as they come through our booth. And uh, give us a call here at uh, 9, 10 a.m., 313-778-7600. If you want to join the conversation, ask any of these folks uh, questions. Tom, here we are again. Oh, this is uh, you, not, not a bad view here. Uh, last last uh, a couple months ago, we were up here for the Woodward Dream Cruise. Uh, the Woodward Dream Show that uh, M1 put on as part of the uh, Dream Cruise. Now we're back up here on the balcony over- overlooking M1 Concourse's one-and-a-half-mile racetrack with some real race cars out here. Uh, i got to tell you, this is heaven for any uh, car person, car guy, car gal. Uh, there are cars here today that have never been seen before on a racetrack. Uh, there are incredible uh, historic cars. There are historic racers, as you were talking about before. So I'm telling you, the next uh, two hours, we're just going to have a ball talking about all things uh, racing, motorsports, automotive. <laughs> and I should say, Tom is a, is a garage owner up here at M1 Concourse, has some really uh, beautiful Porsches in that garage. A, uh, what, what do you got in there? Uh, there's a 356 Speedster, and uh, my favorite car is a Mazda MX-5 Cup car that we have here at M1. It's a full-blown race car, and then I have a Mazda Miata that I use on the track, and a Porsche 911 Cabriolet, and a Porsche Panamera Hybrid. So I run the full gamut from cars that are 60 years old to cars that are brand new. And then, uh, and Tom tracks these cars up here, as do all the members. Uh, it's, it's the heart of this uh, great 
uh, private racing club up here, having this one-and-a-half-mile racetrack inside the metro Detroit area. Uh, the, the Mazda Tom mentions uh, used to be the PR spokesman for Mazda as well as Audi uh, years ago, so Tom knows what he's talking about. Also, a man who knows what he's talking about is Tim McGrain, who joins us here. He is the CEO of M1 Concourse and the host for this weekend. Uh, Tim, nice of you to have us up here. Henry, it's a pleasure, and uh, thank you for coming back. Well, this is, this is uh, we, we always laugh uh, whenever we get you on the program because you're, you're a Brit. You come from the, uh, the other side of the pond. I, I know you, uh, you love racing cars of all kinds. Here in Detroit, uh, we love V8s. But you see everything up here this weekend, uh, from from uh, European machinery to American machinery. This is quite a display. That's exactly it. And, and, and that wine in the background, or whirl in the background, that's the 68 Lotus Turbine IndyCar um, that, that ran one of two cars of those cars that are here today. Bruce Linsmeyer was kind enough to bring that car out. Um, we, we've got a really, uh, really eclectic grouping of cars, from the vintage Indy cars. Uh, we have, you know, a late model LMP. You know, car that's been out there um, in in early. We've got some early stock cars here, um, and obviously they'll feature as a part of the Can-Am group. Is the wonderful Chaparrales that are going to be out back on the track very soon. Yeah, stunning. I mean, come up here for nothing else to see the three Chaparrales, and very very rare look at those cars yeah. outside of their museum in in Texas. I, I have to think, Henry, that that's probably the first and only time those three cars have appeared together on a racetrack. Actually, it's been. Uh, I think. The last time uh, that they have, have had sent more than one car out was uh, 2005, when they when when Jim was tribute of the uh, what was then the Monterey Historics, but Laguna Seca yeah. put the cars out. But other than that, they've only ever taken one car at a time. So for us to have four of the Chaparrales here and, and three of the sports cars, we've got two, uh, which is the original US RIC Championship winning car. Uh, then uh, 2E, which was, uh, you know, sort of the first of the, the, the high-wing cars. Um, 2H is the closed car. Excuse me, 2F, the, the closed car that, that they went to Europe in. And then his uh, Indy 500 winning car, the 2K, which isn't running. Yeah, so. yeah, really, really special cars. Yeah, uh, give us a 30,000-foot view here to, to start off. What, what are you guys doing with the American Speed Festival? Um, how, how is this event unique and different? Well, what we're looking to do, this is one of the sort of signature events uh, that M1 is looking to develop. It was actually scheduled for last year, but like a lot of things, it, it never happened. Um, so, you know, we, we kicked it off this year, um, and it, we're going to create, you know, what will be a, it's a, obviously it's an automotive event, but it's not just a car event. It, we want to create a lifestyle event around the automobile, but celebrating the, the past, present, and future of the cars, which we can do on the track because... They're not running wheel-to-wheel -wheel in competition. They're going out there doing station laps. So you can get a real diversity of cars, both in types um, and in eras. Uh, Tom, you're, you're, a, uh, you're an owner here. Uh, you guys are uh, very magnanimous in, in sharing this track with uh, events like this. I mean, I, I've really lived here for the last month. You've, you've had uh, three major events uh, here at M1 Concourse, uh, we, we've got the Speed Festival this weekend. Last weekend we had uh, Motorbella. The weekend before that, Tim, remind me, <laughs> I've, uh, um, what were you guys doing here the weekend before that? We had, uh, oh boy, it's been just a blur now. Um, we're getting this, obviously, Woodward Dream uh, Show, sure. as you sure. mentioned. 
was uh, was was the first one we kicked yep. off. Um, we were up on top of the the uh, hospitality trailer that we had because our event center wasn't completed at that time. We were able to get it completed just literally just in time for day one of uh, Motabella, and and I think it really showed its 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 use in the sense that all their press conferences were originally scheduled to be outside. Mother Nature played havoc to that, and they were able to move everything inside. And the event center really sort of showed, um, you know, what it can be. Yeah, Tim, why don't you tell us a little bit about this event center? Um, how big is it? What's it going to be used for? Um, where do we go forward? With so this is a, a twenty-eight thousand seven hundred square foot building. Um, it's sort of split, and not exactly in half, but half of it is a a conference hall, uh, which actually can be divided into three sections. So somebody can take the enti- entire space, or if it's a smaller meeting, or they want to, to have different breakout sessions, it's got got you know, three dividing walls. Uh, then the side we're sitting on now, or on the upper balcony, this ultimately is going to be the public access restaurant. We're talking with two, two or three potential restaurant operators. So sometime in 2022 or before this will be, but in the in the interim, we're going to use it for events how we are doing today. And there'll be the restaurant space downstairs with a big kitchen, and then obviously upstairs here, we've got the inside lounge and this wonderful outside sun deck. Well, the, the beauty of this whole thing, too, is that here we are sitting about 35 feet above the pit entrance and the track itself uh, between turn 10A and 10B. Uh, an incredible viewing position. And look at the number of people that are standing up here just watching and watching these cars go by. It's uh, an incredible sight. Yeah, it's the best view in the house. And, and to my earlier point, Tom, I mean, as a, as a owner here, uh, as as the uh, as the business model for the for this event, uh, yeah, you get you get it. I mean, uh, this this isn't just a uh, very private club. You, this is very much part of M1 Concourse's culture as you invite in these events. Right, but I think that you have to set where there's uh, two separate operations here. One is the uh, garage units themselves, which is a condominium association. And then the other part of it, where we're sitting now, is part of M1 Concourse, the corporation. So we, we were, we're separate, but we share uh, the passion that uh, both the owners of M1 have and the garage owners have for, as I said, everything that makes a noise. <laughs> and especially ones that don't make a noise. This is the quietest car on the track is the uh, STP turbine car coming by us. And, and you and you share these uh, cars. The owners share these cars. This this event opened on Thursday uh, with with a, with a group of cars here uh, gathering here, going downtown, seeing some of the great museum spaces in this town. And then last night, Tim, uh, Tom, and I were walking down here. Uh, there were a number of owners who had their garages open. You could go in uh, and see some of these cars up close, and they're spectacular. Yeah, we had uh, about a hundred people. Uh, signed up for the first annual garage reveal, uh, which we uh, opened up a number of garages, uh, garage owners opened their garages up for people who are outside of the M1 community to come in and see what this community is all about. And uh, there was uh, just rave reviews. People were stunned at the garages, the cars that are in the garages. And I must say also, the uh, friendliness of all the owners. And I have one anecdotal story about last night. Uh, a young couple came into our garage about 8, eight o'clock, 7.30, 8 o'clock, and we were talking with them, and they said, well, we're real car people, we're car nuts. Uh, my boyfriend, now my fiancé, 
just proposed to me outside of your garage <laughs> and gave me uh, this diamond ring. Wow, that is a so true, we had true car a, family. Yeah, we had uh, uh, an engagement uh, happen right outside our garage last night. <laughs> that's that's fantastic. Is that you think that's a first for M1, Tim? I believe it is. Yes, <laughs> that we know of. <laughs> I, I, I love that. So that that's, uh, that sounds like a very happy marriage. Uh, very happy marriage to me. So, so uh, Tim, tell us what's out on the on the track now. You've had race cars uh, running all uh, this morning. Uh, we hear some 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 Chevy small block V8s out here. What are we looking at? So this is the the Formula 5000 class. Uh, so there's there's three examples out there. We did have um, we did lose a, a, a couple to mechanical um, yesterday, which, which happens. Um, but at the moment, so the, the three guys and you know one of them, you know, is, is classified from that great high hair box here. You know, we, they're so distinctive. Um, so, you know, from that point of view, uh, the, the drivers are really enjoying it. I did talk to a couple of people I know very well that bought Indy cars. Um, one of them had bought his, and he hadn't done anything to it since he'd run it on the speedway. So it certainly wasn't geared for M1 concourse. Uh, so, you know, he said, I, I really couldn't get out of first gear. When I come back, I'll be a lot more prepared. So certainly, you know, we're very fortunate for all the people who bought the great cars. Uh, there's no shortage of events for people to take cars to and bringing a car to, you know, a brand new venue and a brand new event. Uh, so we're very fortunate. Here comes the, the, the two of them dicing it out there. But, uh, yeah, those distinctive high airbox here was wonderful. Well, and, and uh, the Formula 5000 is a great uh, event because our next guest is going to be David Hobbs, who is a Formula 5000 uh, champion. As somebody who grew up on the other side of the pond, with Formula 1 being the dominant series, yeah. Um, I, 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 I love the, uh, the first car that you, that you pointed out here, which was the Lotus Turbine. And the Lotus really made an impression in this country in the mid-60s, coming over here to Indianapolis. Uh, Colin Chapman, Jim Clark came over here and won the Indianapolis 500. And that was the beginning of the rear engine, or the end of the front engine yeah, right. era. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and, uh, uh, you know, from from an English perspective, uh, put that into context. Well, I've been a lifelong Jim Clark fan. There's tens of thousands of people out there. It, it, it's amazing that for somebody that, that regrettably passed away so long ago, to have as many fans that he had, many that were, you know, never even alive when he was alive. Um, I, I was just, you know, young at the time. Um, you know, so he, he's sort of legendary, as you say. Lotus did what they did, but um, you know, I think hats off to Jack Jack Brabham. You know, who, who really was the first one out there with his Kimberly Cooper special, and, and I can only imagine the reaction they got. You know, when you've got the you know the the, the foits of the world with their roadsters. And, you know, this little Brabham shows up that looks like a sort of a roller skate or something like that. And uh, uh, you hear lots of stories about, um, you know, how, how Jack sort of, uh, you know, interacted with them. Um, I was very fortunate when, we, when I was in the 80s, when I was involved in, first involved in vintage racing down in Palm Springs. He, he came out three years in a row. So I got to spend a lot of time with him. He certainly was one of those sort of Formula One icons. And uh, but you hear the story about he joked with them and go out now. Which way do we go around? <laughs> sort of winding them up. Um, but well, yeah, the, so the Lotus here, um, the, the, the turbine car, um, you know, that's wonderful. And, and Tom, uh, you, you and I have, have lived this for for decades. I mean, it's uh, we, we've seen this development in motorsport, and the world has gotten so small. Uh, in the last 60 years, so you know, for the for the first time uh, in a long time, we're going to have IMSA rules and World Manufacturer rules 
are going to be the same. Uh, so you can race the same rules at Le Mans as you race over here at Road Atlanta. But you go back to 1965 and the 1960s, and to have somebody like Colin Chapman, one of the most innovative uh, engineers yeah. in England, come over here where you, and where you have Jim Hall, who's one of the most innovative engineers in the United States, and all these folks would meet at places like Indianapolis and show their technology. Yeah, and they were brilliant brilliant guys, but they did it, too, in a very different environment. Uh, you know, they did a lot of their own work in their backyard garages, you know, not these big mega uh, facilities that we have now. And to see the, like, uh, with the chaparrales, the, really the innovation that uh, Jim Hall made in aerodynamics is just uh, incredible. Even today, the principles are well used. Yeah, and, and, and just stunning cars. Again, to our listeners out there uh, who are looking to come out here this weekend, uh, come out here and, and go to the Chaparral Corral and see these incredible cars. Actually, here, here comes the uh, Chaparral 2F. Uh, and and uh, 2E right in front of us coming out, oh, and the uh, the original too. So all three of them coming out here, going the track. Just an incredible uh, sight. And Tim, I, I went on the internet uh, uh, a couple nights ago and watched the Chaparral 2F win at Brands Hatch back in 1967. That's your backyard. That's it. I grew up with an earshot of that track, and uh, I, I, I was out there. I was very young at the time. I, I probably Were you there? Were you at that yeah, event? Yeah. Oh. I was out there with, with my dad's friend. My dad was a car dealer, but he wasn't passionate about cars, and, and uh, I didn't know what I was looking at. I mean, there were cars racing. I, I, I do recall at that age, we always wondered who this chap P. Hill was, because we only knew one hill, and that was Graham Hill. Graham hill. <laughs> who, who's this P. Hill on the side of these he was American. That was the American uh, Hill, yeah. <laughs> Phil Hill, the great Phil Hill, but uh, um, yes, you know, from that that point of view, but, you know, technologically wise, what Jim did in his day, um, you don't imagine the expression when, when they rolled these things off the trailer at the track and, you know, people going, you know, what the heck's that? <laughs> well, there were a lot of uh, unique innovations made back in that era, too. Uh, remember, you had the vacuum vacuum cleaner cars. Uh, that was a chaparral. Chaper yeah. yeah, and uh, and then you know uh, cars that evolved out of uh, Le Mans, those type cars. Again, the evolution of the when you see like a, a Porsche 910, which is a very clean, small spider type car, and then the next level above that was the 917. And then the 917.10, and then the ultimate 917.30 in just a relatively short period of time. But the uh, engineering evolution uh, at that period was just quite incredible. Yeah, just tremendous. And I, and I suspect, Tim, as, as this event evolves in coming years, we're going to see uh, some of those technologies. You're, you're, you're headlining these chaparrales this weekend. But uh, as, the, as this event goes forward, is that in your intent to sort of uh, create themes uh, of, of particular cars? It, it is. So, you know, as we, I mean, there's no doubt about it, this is going to be a tough act to follow. You know, but that being said, we're moving into sort of next year. And again, this underlying theme of past, present and future. So we're going to look at rec recognized cars from that era. 
Um, next year, it, it, we're not sure whether it's going to be the feature. It's certainly going to be one of the highlighted classes. 60th anniversary of the Shelby brand. So, so all things Shelby are going to be part of next year's American Speed Festival. Um, we got actually, we were very fortunate this weekend. We have one of the, the great Shelby team drivers, Alan Grant, is with us. You know, Alan was sort of started young as a racer, but he was on the team when they won the 1965 World Championship. So. Um, it's wonderful, but certainly we're going to build American Speed Festival in, into its own identity here in North America so we can showcase, again, a cross-section of cars, uh, past, present, and future. Yeah, that's Tim. fantastic. Uh, uh, Tom, hold that thought. We're going to uh, wind up the segment here and hear from some of our sponsors. Tim, great to have you on the program as always. Great event, and uh, we look, look forward to a lot more this weekend. Henry, thank you very much. All right, you're on 910 AM, Car Radio. This is uh, Henry Payne with Detroit News. We're going to take a break, hear from our sponsors. And on the other side, we'll be talking to David Hobbs, one of the great racers of all time. Visit Central Park Deli today and receive 10% off any purchase when ordering from our mobile app and enter promo code 910AM. Our new menu items include gluten-free wraps, spinach wraps, fried spicy buffalo cauliflower, and sweet potato maple cheesecake. Don't forget about our always delicious Seigensburg corned beef, our fresh hand-patted charbroiled 100% premium beef burgers, and our homemade teriyaki stir-fries. Central Park Deli has curbside service available and DoorDash delivery. Come visit us today. Mr. Softy Toilet Paper is manufactured in Detroit, Michigan with two-ply 500 sheets and will bring long-lasting satisfaction every time. Quality is our goal, along with low cost, to give you the greatest bathroom experience. We've tested over 1,000 flushes, and it's septic-free, so you can flush with the confidence you deserve. For more information, visit our website at MrSoftyToiletPaper.com. That's M-R-S-O-F-T-I-E ToiletPaper.com. Hello Detroit, this is Kim Holt. I'm here to introduce you to MoreForDetroit.com. MoreForDetroit.com is a website giving you a brief summary of who Ricardo Moore is, what Ricardo Moore does, and what Ricardo Moore believes about Detroit. More for Detroit also has a comprehensive list of contact numbers on who to call just in case. More for Detroit is for you. M-O-O-R-E, the number four, Detroit.com. Are you looking for a great deal on TV advertising? Are you searching for an avenue to get your business name out to the public? With WADL TV 38, we're offering a great special with 50 commercial ads for a great price. This offer is for a 30-day ad placement and can be renewed as often as you choose. Please contact Ramisha Williams for more information at 313-434-8291. That's 313-434-8291 or email at R-O-N-E. E-S-H-A at WADLDetroit.com. Who else but 910 AM can give you this much excitement? I'm Henry Payne, auto columnist for the Detroit News. You are on car radio. Full swing here on Saturday. Well, I just have a stream coming through here talking about cool cars, classic cars, hot rods, muscle cars. We've got a great lineup for you today. Best car radio show in all of Michigan. Catch it all right here on 910 AM Superstation. 910, the Super Station. The oldest radio station in town since 1922.
back into Car Radio. You're on 910 AM, the Superstation. I'm Henry Payne, joined by Tom McDonald, broadcasting from the terrace of M1 Concourse's Event Center. This is the place to be this weekend if you're a car fan. Uh, come join us up here at M1 Concourse at the inaugural American Speed Festival. Uh, beautiful weather. Uh, great views, great cars, and we're joined by David Hobbs, who's one of the great drivers of all time, as well as uh, one of the great commentators. David, you could probably te teach us a thing or two about broadcasting up here. <laughs> I doubt it very much. <laughs> no, I, I make no claims to being anything like that, but uh, I was on the air for 40 years and uh, enjoyed pretty much every minute of it. And obviously I was very proud to be uh, part of the team that broadcast the first NASCAR Daytona 500 live air-to-air -air coverage of a NASCAR race, yes, which had been fought by Bill France. No, we don't want that. No, we don't want that stuff. We don't want the crowd here. We don't. We don't want to keep watching on TV. And of course, their current <laughs> contract is worth four and a half billion dollars over did ten you know, years <laughs> from both Fox and NBC. So <laughs> I would say that in the end, NASCAR came out pretty well on that t on that TV deal. And of course. The race was a roaring success. I mean, all that, the guy, the soups, Manhattan, said, well, you know, NASCAR, all those rednecks down south, they're not going to be interested, really. You know, I mean, uh, nobody up here is. Well, of course, they had a snowstorm, so the Midwest was pretty blanked out, and um, a lot of other games were cancelled. And, and, of course, at the end, it was quite an exciting race with Cale Arbor and Donnie Allison for the lead. And then, of course, as you know, I'm the last lap at turn three they had a coming together so they both get out and start punching out each other <laughs> meanwhile richard petty who's been a long way back comes in and wins again i mean that was his i don't know 400th win at the daytona 500 and uh then bobby allison <laughs> who's in the top three he goes around on a slurry down lap comes around to turn three leaps out the car and helps his brother so uh <laughs> Ken Squire in the booth, of course, is going berserk, and uh, we're all going berserk. So, uh, and in the end, they ended up with a, with a great rating. I think about six or seven million people watched it. Which I bet went to a NASCAR, went to it, went to a, fa a fight, and a NASCAR race broke out. Yeah, what a what a who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was one of the most memorable. I remember watching that. Yeah, and it, live, that. it lives on YouTube. Yeah, oh it's my everywhere. gosh, it's uh, incredible. See those guys duking it out. Yeah, of course, Cale Yarbrough. Had the comb over of all comb overs, so once he took his helmet off and started fighting, there's his hair all blowing it all, and it was about a foot and a half long, and it was all waving around in the air. And Johnny has it, and then Bobby comes up and starts hitting everybody with his helmet, takes his helmet off and starts. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was a big fight. Uh, uh, RG Bargy, is that what you that was, uh, RG, that, that was definitely an RG Bargy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or a kerfuffle. <laughs> so, David, you've been, uh, you said, 40 years uh, on and off the air. Tell us a little bit about your early racing career. Uh, well, I think you started back around 66, 67. Good grief. Or 62. How about 59? 59, well, see, that was way 60, before my time. 62 years ago. Well, I got a motorbike, and uh, speed went to my head. And I loved rushing around the countryside with my girlfriend on the pillion seat. And uh, then I started to drive my mum's car too fast. It was a 1952 sidebar of Morris Oxford, so it had about 48 horsepower, I suppose. About the same as the motorbike. Anyway, I decided if I was going to drive like a maniac on the road, I should perhaps... I turned my attention to the racetrack, and of course in those days it was so cheap. Um, 
I mean, had to join a club, had to pay an entry fee, and had to buy a license from the RAC. And the whole thing between them cost about 20 bucks. Um, what RAC would be the English equivalent to SCCA? In no, the RAC would be would be an ACUS event. It was it was a governing body. Okay. So we had a we had the BRDC, the BRSC, had all sorts of clubs. But you had to join the club to get into a race. Um, and off I went with Mum's car because I drove it there. Engine broke, so we had to tow it back later in the week. Um, and I, my dad, you know, invented an automatic transmission which had a four-speed. Ah, so he uh, knew a thing or two about cars. Well, he knew a thing about inventing things. He was an inventor, really, and he'd make this gearbox, and uh, it was four speeds. It didn't have a fluid drive, so it had, it had friction clutches, which were hydraulically operated, so it didn't lose much horsepower. And that was in the car. Um, so the first race I go to, as I enter as a sedan car, of course, when I get there, they say, oh, this car's not homologated with this automatic gearbox. We have to put you in a sports car class. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm up against things like SK120. <laughs> But that's how I started, and I raced that Jag, also with the automatic, and then the following year I raced the Los Elite, and also with his gearbox, because by then Westinghouse Brake and Signal had bought an interest in his company, so they thought it'd be nice to uh, advertise the gearbox with the racing. And we won 14 out of 18 starts in that. Wow. Including the class at the Nürburgring 1,000 kilometers, which because we never been to before. So you, you weren't just uh, racing in England. There's so many racetracks well, uh, in England. You were you were going across the up channel. In, up until then, I had. I had never done a race overseas. And we entered the, the as I say, the Nürburgring 1000 case, which is in April. Got an entry, and uh, off we went. Because when we got there, they called me up to the office. Achtung Fahrerlager, which is a tension paddock. Achtung Fahrerlager, Achtung Fahrerlager. Air Hobbs bidder to the office, Air Hobbs to the office. Oh, Christ, now what? So <laughs> off I go, and uh, he says, Has your car got an automatic gearbox? <laughs> or automatic retriever? And I said, Yeah, it has. Oh, he said, Well, one of your competitors has protested it. Uh -huh. So you'll have to go from the 1100cc GT class to the 1600cc sports car class. Win which, of course, we had no hope. However, the car in that, the main car in that, was a Porsche RSK, to, which was quick. And I think Sterling was driving one, and anyway, there was only about two in there, two or three of them in the race. And on the last lap, because it's only 44 laps of the race, because it's, it's a long, long track. track. <laughs> <laughs> on the last lap, the lead car crashed, but we won it. Wow. And of course, with Teutonic... That's your debut at, Mer at Nürburgring. My debut at Nürburgring and my debut anywhere abroad. <laughs> and, uh, of course, the, the big, the killer was that the Germans, being very methodical, the prize scale changed, you know, obviously the overall winner, which would be a big sport, like a three-liter sports car. Anyway, the 1600cc sports car class won about eight times more than the 1100cc class. <laughs> so we took over a lot more money, thanks to my defender. <laughs> and then it kind of went from there and then I um, the following year I drove in a open wheeler for the first time former junior what year was that that would be 63 yeah I'm oh, sorry two years later because in 62 I went back to the Nürburgring and my co-driver was Richard Atwood yes and Richard Atwood and I had been apprentices at Jaguar Cars in Coventry and of course as you know Richard 
went on to be the first guy to win Le Mans outright in a Porsche, mm -hmm. driving with Hans Hermann in uh, 1970. It was a 917, was it? 917, yeah. first the, overall. The uh, Austria. Yeah, the 23 car, the right. Yeah. And uh, he... What, so, but, so we go back to 62, he's driving Formula Junior. So he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll drive with you in the Nürburgring, and then later on in the year you can have a go in my Formula Junior car. So we went to a place called Alton Park, which is a tricky track in England. Of course, yeah. in those days, trees all around the edge and all sorts of... No safety. Buildings. No armco. It had been an American uh, air, American army base. So there were all sorts of buildings you know, right by the track. So I go there, and the team said, well, you know, you might you might come in the top five because there's a guy called Keith Francis. He's the king of Alton Park. And he'll, then, you know, there's a couple of other guys who are very good in Formula Junior. So won it easy uh, <laughs> then joined the team the following year and drove Formula Junior all year came third in the championship behind Denny Holm uh, yeah another another great name great right, yeah one of my great best Australian ever was again Denny Holm at Silverton in the Formula Junior which was a support race for the Formula 1 race it wasn't a championship race because in those days there were quite a lot of non-championship Formula 1 races but everybody came you know the whole Ferrari Lotus all that lot so we're in the support race, and there's like 40 Formula Junior cars in this race. And Denny and I broke away, and we were just gone. I mean, normally those Formula Junior races are won by a tenth of a second or whatever. Yeah. Over about eight competitors. Anyway, we, we rocket off into the distance, and I passed him, and he passed me, and I passed him. And then three laps ago, the gear shift broke off in my hand. So there's a little stub about half an inch long. So I dropped back. And then I learned how to push forward for third and first and pull it back for second and fourth with my finger. And on the last lap, I broke the lap record and missed winning it by, I mean, I was right on his rear wheel. I mean, it was, again, a couple of hundredths of a second. But, yeah, um, that's, quite, that's quite a yeah, story. Yeah, so it was one of my races. But that's when you, so you needed the automatic. Uh, in, in that race. <laughs> well, yeah, I said. <laughs> when yeah. was your first visit to Le Mans? Uh, 1962, that year. And I drove another elite, not my elite, I drove a regular stick shift elite for Team Elite, which was an offshoot of Team Lotus. And I was driving with the Australian, Frank Gardner. Who well, and these were all Brit teams that you were yeah, yeah. driving for. And... Uh, it was a hell of a fracas before the race because Lotus turned up with a Lotus 23 for Jimmy Clark to drive with Trevor Taylor. Now, Jimmy Clark had led the Nürburgring 1,000 kilometers like two weeks before in the Lotus 23, and his exhaust pipe broke and he suffered from fumes. But the French had cars in a little class, and they had those Alpines, the Renault Alpines, and they always wanted to, they couldn't win overall, but they wanted to win the index of thermal efficiency and the index of performance. And they could see this Lotus was a huge threat, and they threw so many roadblocks in the way that eventually Colin Chapman said, right, that's it, we're, we're heading home. And, but the next day, um, so they wouldn't let the Lotus 23 run. And the next, well, over the next 24 hours, Frank Gard and I won the class, and we won their prize index of thermal efficiency as well. Anyway, um, 
and we came eighth overall. So that was a pretty good start of my Le Mans career, and I subsequently went on and did it another 19 times. That's uh, that's great history, David. And, and you know, as you um, as, as you look at these chaparrales going around the track here, there was so much uh, so much innovation during that yeah. period, as yeah. well as some of the great. Uh, Names uh, in the sport, Holm, uh, Clark, obviously, uh, uh, you, you became a great international name. What, what did you think, for example, when uh, these chaparrales came into the sport in 1967 with these yeah. high wings on the car? What did you think? Well, we were all incredibly impressed because, as usual, everybody else was taken aback and said, Oh, you can't do that. And of course, again, the old rules books opened up and said, It doesn't say anywhere in here that you can't do it. So. Yeah, I raced, raced against the Chaparral, the, 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 the 2C, whatever it is, back in 1965. This was my first trip to Can-Am ground, and uh, oh, yeah. I came third. Chaparral, too. Found to be behind the Chaparral and Bruce McLaren. Mm. And then go forward to, like, 1967 at Brands Hatch in England for the BOAC 1,000-kilometer race, which was part of the uh, manufacturer of makes championship. Of course, up rolls the... 2F with, with the high wing and Surtees uh, and I were on the pole in a load of 270 but we had a lot of trouble straight away and of course Mike Spencer Phil Hill in this car won the race won the thousand case yeah and they did the world championship that year they had a lot of mechanical issues but they finally won at Brands Hatch which is one of the which is, I think was the last race of the championship so they they won that handily with Spence and Phil Hill at the wheel yeah that's uh, and, and again you can you can see that uh on YouTube, it's it's great to uh, watch in retrospect. As, as drivers, how did you guys did you did you buy? Did you try to uh, go race for Chaparral? Did you want to race for uh, Colin Chapman at Lotus? How 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 did well, uh, drivers? Uh, what kind of power did drivers have in those days? Well, not much. I mean, you had to wait. I mean, yeah. I mean, when we lived in my wife and I were first married, and we lived in our little house. Spent an inordinate amount of time on the phone ringing people like Colin Chapman to see if I could get a drive. I got a couple of drives for him in Formula 2 and lost my copybook rather badly, so he was never a huge David Helps fan. Um, Jim Hall used Vic Elford because he used Brian Redman, but he never used me. So um, it was just, you just had to keep chiseling away. And, and then, of course, all, as always happens in life, you know, you, you get yourself organized to do a race and someone says i'll give you a hundred pounds to drive so okay well of course you can bet your bottom dollar the next week somebody actually rings you and says by the way would you like to drive my lola in such and such a race and we'll give you 500 <laughs> <laughs> too late you've already signed up somebody else <laughs> is there any brand that you have not driven no over many. the years well i've never driven a chaparral okay well maybe today we'll get you in one yeah, well, yeah. i've driven yeah. Well, you drove with Mark Donahue, I think, I in did. a Ferrari, didn't you? 512. Yeah. yeah. And did you ever drive? You never drove with him in the 917, so. No. The Roger never had a 917. Well, I wanted to drive a 917 because I drove for Golf 68 and 69. Did you John Wires? John Wires car in the GT40. Then he decided at the end of the year that he would. He would. He got the deal to run the 917s. And I was going to be one of the drivers, so I went to test at Daytona, and uh, unfortunately, in the test, going up onto the banking, those Porsche 917s were incredibly flexible, 
Brian Redman didn't like driving them at all for a long time. They were very flexible. Anyway, I selected. Instead of going up a gear as I went on the bank, and I went down a gear and blew the engine. The box or the engine. And the Porsche guys were never very keen on me for some reason or other, so they didn't. So that gave them the perfect opportunity. Um, so I didn't drive the 917. So it was very, very satisfying when the following year I drove the 512, 1971, and we got to Daytona, and Mark and I were both quicker than all the 917, and we led <laughs> handily until in the middle of the night Vic Elford had a tyre blow, um, and everybody slowed down. Some twerp in a Porsche 911 who really lapped about 100 times by then ran to the back of Mark. And, uh, that's motor racing. Well, and that's, that's one of the... That's one of the great rivalries in uh, sport was the Ferrari 512 yeah. and the 917. Uh, last question uh, for you before we let you go. Uh, you and Brian Redman uh, have, have been a great pair yeah. on the racing circuit. Uh, folks, folks love uh, coming out and seeing you guys talk about uh, the glory days of racing. You guys were both F5, F5000 champions. Right. Were, were, you, were you rivals on the track oh, uh, to start? Brian Redman saw me win at a place called Croft in Northern England, and he was driving for a guy who owned a, a chain of garages. Uh, and uh, he said, what, what would you like to drive then, Brian? Next, and he said, I want one of them cars that David Obvious drove. So, <laughs> so the following year, he and I were racing again. I was driving for John Surtees. He's driving for this, uh, gosh, Red Rose Motors in the low 70s. And then um, we raced against each other a lot, and then we both drove together for golf in 1968 and 68 and he and I drove the Nürburgring together in the GT40 there and a few years later we drove a, a car in a one-off race at Mid-Ohio which was run by an insurance company sponsored by an insurance company the first prize was 50,000 and we won it pretty good yeah, good that, money that, then that, that was back in like 1980 cranky then after I stopped racing he lived in Vero Beach and we went to stay with him for a couple of days after the Daytona 24-hour. And we decided we really liked Vero. We took a tour around Florida and we thought that Vero was probably one of the nicest places we've seen there. Yeah. So, eventually we bought a house down there too. Yeah. That's a beautiful part of the country. Well, uh, uh, David, we'll uh, let you go. I know you're, you're a busy man here this weekend. It's, it's great having you out here. Uh, as well as all these historic cars. You going to get on the track a little later today? I am going to do my very best to not get on the track later <laughs> that. But, uh, you're right, this, uh, this American Speed Festival, this is their inaugural year, and I think it's going to grow because there's a good, good, obviously a heck of a turnout of cars. I mean, they're not all on the track. I mean, there's a tremendous amount stored at the back on display. There's some, yep. some great kit here and, yeah. uh, and a good crowd. So uh, hopefully this grows over I here. think the only way going forward is up. This is uh, a great inauguration, and thank you so much for not just being here, but sharing your yeah. stories. And uh, David also will be the master of ceremonies tonight yeah. at the Checker Flag Ball. Exactly. So yeah. we'll see you uh, tonight. See you later on, then, yeah. yeah we'll see well, you thank later. you very much. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Okay. And uh, uh, join us now is Al Schultz. Uh, and and he, he, I believe, Al, you're driving a car about the vintage of uh, David Hobbs here. Hobbs came into racing in the early 50s, and you're, you're driving a Hudson Hornet out here. Are you? I'm, Good to I see am. You. I'm driving a 1952 fabulous Hudson Hornet. So I, I'm, I'm a... Um, 
I'm a, I'm a relative newcomer to uh, Detroit, um, and and I you know I, I I learned the Detroit culture here over the last 20 years, and obviously everybody knows about uh, Chevrolet and Ford and and uh, Chrysler these 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 great brands, but Hudson was not only a great car brand, it was also a great uh, department store brand here, and that's how that's how Hudson started, right? It, it was. In fact, uh, one wall of the Ford Field where the Detroit Lions play is the old uh, uh, Hudson Warehouse building. Okay. So when they raised uh, when they raised that, they kept that wall up and then built it built it into the new uh, Ford Stadium. So how did uh, H- Hudson find its name? On uh, on a car on a car company. Well, the the owner of Hudson Department Store founded uh, Hudson in 1909, so it actually been around a long time, and uh, got into racing very early on. Early with uh, a car they called the Mile a Minute car, and then of course, of course, the idea was 60 miles an hour, right? Which back in those days was pretty fast. And then and then they continued in racing through the 30s, did uh, quite a few Indy cars, and then, of course, really hit pay dirt in the 1950s with the fabulous Hudson Hornet, which was... That, that was basically the father or grandfather of modern-day NASCAR cars, wasn't it, the Hornet? It, it really, it really yeah. was, and uh, it was a phenomenal car because of its step-down design. Normally, cars were built on top of the frame. The Hudson Hornet was really the first one to have that step-down design where you you lowered the center of gravity. So Hudson Hornets dominated NASCAR from 1951 to 1954, winning like 80 of 150 races. Now, were these races that. that were on the sand, though? Some, some were on the sand. Yep. The first race of the year was always uh, the Daytona Beach race, so it was literally out on the sand. And I think back in those days, probably over half the races were on tracks that were dirt or sand or, in many cases, mud. I mean, one of my favorite photographs of Herb Thomas, who owned and drove this car, was him looking out the window with his goggles on, covered in mud, and the car covered in mud as he just finished a race. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. Right. Now tell us how you came about getting this collector card. So the way I came about it was is my oldest grandson, uh, who, who, by the way, has autism, was, was a big fan of the Cars movie and would watch it 100, 150, maybe 200 times. And I would watch it with him. And I learned about the fabulous Hudson Hornet and Doc Hudson. And then he came to visit one time, and I found out that the real, the only surviving fabulous Hudson Hornet was in the museum in Ypsilanti. So I decided to take him to the museum. And when we got there, one of the guys working in the museum said, would you like to let him sit in the car? I said, I'd love it. And he sat in the car, and he put his hands on the wheel. He got the biggest smile on his face. And I said to the, 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 the fellow working there, I said, you got to tell me who owns this car. And he gave me his phone number. I called him up, and I said, if you ever go to sell this car, I want to buy it. Wow. And then he put it up for auction down in uh, Indiana. Uh, what year was in, that? In 2018, mm-hmm. and, I, and I, I bought the car at that auction. So it's been, it was in museum then, uh, in, t- in t- 2018. So you're bringing it back now to its natural habitat, a racetrack. E- exactly, and I, you know, to my knowledge, it hasn't been on a track for a long time, right? It's been cars, uh, you know, basically 70 years old. But with that said, I do want to point out that I got one car left to beat in my class. 
Mellow Yellow went out last night with a breakdown. The, the NASCAR truck blew a line today. So all I've got left to beat is the Miller Lite car. And, you know, in racing, you got to finish the race goes. to win, right? So, so. Well, your, your car is really a, a signature car here at M1 also, too. Uh, you were driving it uh, during the uh, Woodward Dream Show on the track. Uh, seeing that thing lean <laughs> coming through the turns was quite interesting. But but Al has uh, you know really shows that car well, and there's really a wonderful history behind it. I mean, uh, any NASCAR fan they know that that car was really, as I said before, the beginning of the modern era of uh, NASCAR. NASCARs. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and they had. Uh, you know, there's a lot of famous people associated with the car, right? It was owned and driven by Herb Thomas, who was the first two-time NASCAR champion. Still to this day, highest win percentage of all time. You know, maybe the best NASCAR driver ever. Yeah. Well, so, so, uh, so get, get into the uh, history in a little more detail then. What year is the car? Um, uh, you talk about the low center of gravity. This was a, a car that was running a straight line six against... Detroit 8s, right? It, it really was, yeah, back then. So, yeah, the car's a 52, and it, it does feature the 7X engine. This car was actually put in the service in 1952 in the middle of the NASCAR season. Uh, Herb Thomas had a bad accident, wrecked his car beyond repair. Got this car is a replacement for the end of the 52 season, and then they put in the new 7X engine, which boosted the horsepower up to, I think, 180 or 190 horsepower. But it's out there running against V8s and just dominating the track well, I because think it's it, low center gravity. In addition gravity. to the low center of gravity, uh, it was pretty aerodynamic, too. It was an aerodynamic yeah. car, and then they, they also said they had some advantage in terms of the steering, although i got to tell you, when I drive out on the track, it's like, it's like driving a boat, right? I drive, one of my, I drive one of my Porsches, I can put my hands at 3 and 9, and I never have to leave there. With the, with the Hudson Hornet, it's like I'm rolling that wheel over, man. <laughs> yeah, we, we've, we've come a long way. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and supposedly it had great steering. That was one of the other things that was a, an advantage for it. And, and, and you see all of this out here now. I mean, uh, as you say, in your, in your class, uh, the Miller Lite NASCAR right. is what? What year is that? An 80? I think 80-something, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah you're, you're, you're seeing all of this technological uh, push here. Uh, I think the other thing that's fascinating from the era of your car, I mean, stock car today is really heavily regulated. Right. Uh, everybody's running uh, spec cars. In those days, uh, in NASCAR as well as in, in a lot of the sports cars out here, all this was being discovered. Uh, uh, what what best engine was the aerodynamics? I mean, it's it's fascinating to see. Yeah, no. well, it was also very. You know, there was uh, really a good boost behind NASCAR by the manufacturers because you know that was where the adage came from: win on Sunday, sell on Monday. That's right. That's and uh, so that's why you know. Everything was identified as the car, whether it be a Chevy, a Dodge, or a Mercury Cyclone, or what have right, you. Right. Uh, but today's NASCAR, they all run the same body, and they just have decals that make it look like right. a Mustang or a right. Chevy, right. which is a little bit of a sleight of hand, but uh, that's the way the evolution of racing has been. Right, right, yeah. yeah. But so, tell us a little more about some of your other cars. Oh, gosh. Um... I have, I have a few other Hudsons. I have a, a 1955 Hudson Italia, which is a pretty neat car. Is that a convertible? <clears throat> no, it's, it's a coupe. 
They made 25 of those. I think there's about 17 still in existence. But I have kind of an eclectic collection. I go back as far as 1912 with a 48SS Pierce Arrow. And then I've got a 1929 Auburn Boat Tail, a 1937 Cord Supercharged Gabriolet. Uh, and then I kind of moved from there into the the fifties. You know, I got a Packard Caribbean. And I have a that was one Corvette. of the most beautiful cars. I thought the Packard Caribbean. I love and that very, car. A lot of technology was in that car. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, so that, that, that's, that's crazy suspension. Right. And, uh, yeah. Power vent windows. And, right. Yeah. It's really yeah. quite yeah. a yeah. Power seats, power yeah. windows. A yeah. lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff yeah. in there. That yeah. was the end of the Packard car company before they. Merged. That's right. With the Studebaker. That's right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. Just so so much innovation uh, during that period of time. Uh, And as I say now, the the. uh, so so much of it is spec driven. So so uh, so much is driven by television too, right, right. Uh, because television wants to see close close racing. So I don't know that we'll ever see the innovation like we saw back in the post war years, the fifties and sixties. Is is that what attracts you to that period with your collection? You like seeing that uh, that that innovation? I, yeah, I think the fifties in terms of design was was beautiful. Like a lot of rounded shapes. Right, the chrome was just everywhere uh fins in the 50s right i mean i think it was as good as it gets yeah we're seeing uh that's the 9730 yeah very rare very rare yeah. car that's uh driving around the race track in front of us yeah one of one of probably one of the most uh, valuable cars yeah it is uh, i don't know what the heritage of that particular car is but uh back in that era that's that's a porsche 917 uh 10 actually the 1730 was the Donahue Penske car, uh-huh. but both of these cars were anywhere between 850 and 1100 horsepower. Yeah, and they just dominated Can-Am to the point where they were they killed Can-Am. Right. Uh, but this, which goes to the competition issue again. Yeah, wait, right. if you innovate to a certain level, nobody can compete with you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, even back in the in the fifties, uh, you know, they were they were tweaking these cars. They were supposed to be stock cars, but in, in fact, uh, Smokey Eunuch was <laughs> the greatest well, cheater of all time. <laughs> was, was actually involved with Hudson's, working on fabulous Hudson Hornets, right? And and you the know, Smokey's one of, Garage, right, Smokey, the greatest damn garage in town. <laughs> I think right. is That's what it was. What it was. Yeah. yeah, and uh, and Smokey, one of his famous lines was, "If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying." <laughs> so what's, what sort of what sort of cheating was going on? Well, it, uh, he was famous, I guess, for camshafts. He would take the camshafts out and polish them down and everything, and make them everything but stock, and that would you know juice the horsepower a little bit. But he was. I, one of the other stories is is that you know they regulated the amount of gas that you could uh, you could put in, and he evidently fitted it with a bigger gas tank, put I think a basketball in the tank, and then somehow had a way to deflate the basketball after they did the testing to determine how much gas you had in the car. <laughs> so I mean, this guy's got some stories. If you if if you read some of the stories I've read on him, it's uh, it's unbelievable. At one point in time, they had won a race. And they were literally taking the engine apart to make sure he hadn't played with the camshaft or anything like that. And then he literally started a fire off to the side to distract them and then went and swapped 
uh, camshaft so that they never figured out what was going on. The guy was a heck of a heck of a character. Yeah, yeah that's and it's those characters that really have cemented the history of motorsports. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, that's what's so great about this event. We, we you, this is a place where you can gather these personalities as well as the cars and tell these stories, and uh, we keep the keep the stories going. Yeah. I, you know, I I think really what does make this special is the fact that you got great cars here, and most of them are running out on the track, right? Yep. You think of most car shows, or the static environment. You walk around and you look at the cars, but, you know, when do you see all these great cars, like Chaparrells that are out there that are running on the track, right? A 52 Hudson Hornet running on the track, the the Mule Corvette running out on the track. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal that, to me that guys are taking them out on the track and doing what they're meant to do, right? Yeah, that's really special. That's what's special about this event. Well, Al, Al, uh, Al Schultz, uh, owner of the 1952 Hudson Hornet, uh, appreciate you coming out here today. What a great car and what a great history here in Detroit. All right, well, thank you guys, and let's enjoy the day. Can't that's get better good. than this, right? Okay. Sunny day in Pontiac, Michigan, cars out on the racetrack. Beats the rain we were getting last week. I'll tell you that's that. for sure. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. All right, so we're going to take a break here at the top of the hour. Hear from some of our sponsors. You're on Car Radio. We'll be back on the other side of the break, talking to Jim Hall, the son of Jim Hall, and these beautiful chaparrales he's brought to the American Speed Festival. Visit Central Park Deli today and receive 10% off any purchase when ordering from our mobile app and enter promo code 910AM. Our new menu items include gluten-free wraps, spinach wraps, fried spicy buffalo cauliflower, and sweet potato maple cheesecake. Don't forget about our always delicious Seigensburg corned beef, our fresh hand-patty charbroiled 100% premium beef burgers, and our homemade teriyaki stir-fries. Central Park Deli has curbside service available and DoorDash delivery. Come visit us today. We asked people in Michigan why they got the COVID-19 vaccine. Because I am 24 weeks pregnant and we wanted to protect our baby boy. The vaccinated to protect my family, protect my friends and help our community. Because I believe in the science. Why did you get vaccinated? My best friend couldn't. She caught COVID and passed away the day before her birthday. That is my why. Be able to hug my mom again. I haven't been able to hug her in over a year. I want to hug my grandma again. And I'm ready to get back to somewhat normal. All the vaccines have been tested for safety and are trusted by doctors. I'm vaccinated. I'm coming to give you a big hug. I love you, Mom. You've got your why. Now find a vaccine near you at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Hello Detroit, this is Kim Holt. I'm here to introduce you to morefordetroit.com. Morefordetroit.com is a website giving you a brief summary of who 